Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. 2019 has been a year-long celebration honoring Durham, North Carolina's 150th anniversary. Artist Soapbox received a grant from Durham 150 in support of the city of Durham's sesquicentennial commemoration. This episode is one of three Durham 150 Artist Spotlights in which I interview a few of the many brilliant artists living here. I love this city. And if you've spent any time in Durham, you know that we are spoiled for choice when it comes to the multitude of amazing creatives making art here. Happy birthday, Durham. Thank you, Durham artists. Thank you for the grant, Durham 150. And listeners, don't forget to support local artists and help them and your community thrive. In this episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Kamara Thomas, songspeller and multidisciplinary storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. Her video, Good Luck America, from her forthcoming album and storytelling work, Tularosa, an American Dreamtime, was featured at the 2019 Haytai Heritage Film Festival. Kamara wrote and produced Soapbox, a traveling public space performance commissioned for Downtown Durham, Inc.'s public space grant. She was also named one of the 14 artists proving Black Americana is real by Paste Magazine. Kamara is currently working on Country Soul Songbook, a musical documentary project exploring race and place in country music. The intro and outro to this episode is Kamara Thomas's song, Good Luck America, the first track from her upcoming album, Tularosa and American Dreamtime. We discuss mythology, geography, spirituality, North Carolina, and the creative process. If you don't already love her, you will soon. Enjoy the conversation with Kamara Thomas. Kamara, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Let's talk about how you found music or how music found you. Do you remember? Um... Well, I was always, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up singing. So I, I was raised, you know, Seventh Day Adventist. My mom got God when I was maybe seven, and music was always a part of what was happening. I went to church school, and ch- you know, church was like kind of the center of everything. And so I sang, you know, always in choir, was always in the concert band. As a percussionist, I decided, you know, I, I, I thought I wanted to play. A flute, and that was not gonna. That was not gonna work. I started. I, I like. I drew all of the. I guess it has eight eight holes. So yeah. I. I really. I'm not a really good sight. I can't make that jump from like I'm on an instrument. There's the music. Play the yeah. music. I can't. It's just not. You know, I'm a kind of a visual learner. So I would draw the all eight holes of the flute above each note and try to like play it that way to kind of, and and I obviously couldn't play that fast enough because it's a really slow way to try to. And so I was like, maybe I should move to percussion because percussion was really, I mean, I I kind of picked it up there where where percussion is, 
is very visual on the page because mm-hmm. you're not you're not having to move up and down scales. You just kind of can play the beat. So I was so that's kind of where I I started was like playing a lot of percussion. I played timpani in college, and it was kind of in college that I under that I finally discovered that I was a musician because I, I music had been such a huge part of my life and I was always doing it. But it wasn't until college when I almost like flunked out of freshman year of college because I was like in the percussion ensemble, in the choir, ah. in the orchestra, in the band. I was like in all the all of these kind of extracurricular music things. And it took up all of my study time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really wasn't interested in the other things I was studying except for theater, which was, you know, what I, what I ended up getting my major in. But that's kind of when I, I was like, oh, I think... I think I really like just naturally do music. But then again, you know, I I kind of I'm always kind of a late learner about like these things, like probably anyone looking from the outside would have been would have been able to say like, oh, you're a musician, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it took me a long time to figure it out. So then after college, I, I did theater and I moved to L.A. to be an actress but I didn't do any acting. <laughs> I, I didn't have a car, which was that's this hard in LA. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of spent my time walking like my one mile radius from my home to my work, hmm. singing songs, and you know I, I'm a, I'm kind of a I write on the ramble or like I sing when I ramble, and so um, you know it was in LA that I finally like the light bulb went on. I was like, oh. I really like songwriting, mm-hmm. you know, like I really, I don't know, I think the space that I got in L.A., because, no, you know, no one's on the street in L.A. It's like right. being alone in a city, like the it's so beautiful because you can just, people do these beautiful gardens, there's, you know, all of this f- foliage and there's no one there. Mm-hmm. It's like to, it's like, you know, if you're not in a car. It sounds um, like you also got some space to actually think and key into the songs mm-hmm. that we're waiting because mm-hmm. at college for most of us is so there's just so much happening and I think the identity formation is so intense during those yeah. stereotypical college years that it's the after college <laughs> where you finally have a little bit of open space and for some people that's really scary yeah um, but for some people it's a it's the final, or I should say, the next step in understanding who we've become mm-hmm. during those undergraduate years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the the truth is, I've always been an introvert, but I've always been in communities where introversion isn't really, you know, isn't really. I don't want to say accepted, but it's like there's not an opportunity to introvert. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like we have to make work know, together. Here we right. go. Here we go. It's the church potluck. It's the church thing. It's mm. the youth group. It's the this. It's the that. You know, and I, I kind of found that it was really in nature, like that. You know, I took kind of some seminal church group like nature trips, like out to Montana and Minnesota, that were these really long trips where. I mean, I would say those are the only opportunities I got to introvert. So I, you know, anyway, so yeah, in L.A. was that moment Mm -hmm. where I was like, finally could just be alone (laughs) with my thoughts. Right, right. (laughs) On your website right now, you identify yourself as a singer, song speller, storyteller, multidisciplinary artist, and mythology fanatic. 
I love this list because I feel like <laughs> narrowing I, I, that down would be would be deleting some important facets of your I'm identity. Trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I I think I'll just go to multidisciplinary artist and leave the mystery. You know, so like I'm a. I mean, at first and foremost, I'm a singer for sure. I mean, that's that's how I connect to the universe. Mm. You know, or that you know, it's the thing that grounds me that I can kind of show up for every day and understand my artistic channel, you know, that that's kind of the hmm. the main line, artistic channel, right? Um, it's the practice. It's the, it's the, um, yeah, it's the, it's the instrument, you know, that I have to show up for every day. Don't ask me about other instruments because they, I have love-hate relationships with all of them. I'll pick them up to write a song and then bandmates will get mad that I'm not practicing my this or that or the uh. other. And I'm like, I don't care about this guitar. I, I wish I cared more, but I don't, you know, but I care about, you know, extending and expanding what I can do vocally. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where my practice happens. Song spelling, I guess, is the more is the more kind of where the mystical parts come in. <laughs> You know, I, I I study that idea of of spell. You know, what what is a spell? You know, what's an incantation? And what do you you know? And it's something that I do in nature all the time. I talk to trees, and I talk to all of it. You know, and spiritually speaking, I would say I'm an animist. You know, I really, which I I really think is just it's just the religion of relationship, right? Mm -hmm. That everything is in relation to to other things. So having to actually relate to a non-human is, you know, that it's everywhere. Non-humans right. are everywhere. Right. <laughs> they surround us, but we tend to kind of like look at look at it all as scenery for mm -hmm. our like human like things we do. Like like, you know, we're kind of human centric as right. if like it's the only thing happening anywhere. So, you know, anyway, so this the spelling, you know, kind of comes, I think, from that, from calling upon powers that aren't human, that, mm -hmm. that I know nothing about. You know, I don't know what it's like to be a tree. And so you can, you can, you know, encant and intend and, and cast spells with a tree, mm -hmm. you know, because you're calling to something that is unknown to you. You know, the way I receive songs sometimes is very, you know, I know that it's not my, you know, just like simply human self that mm -hmm. is bringing them forth, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, we, I could talk about that for hours now. It's just Do you feel like idea. something comes to you, something external comes to you? Or is it a conversation that you are having with something outside of yourself? Is that what you mean? I mean... I'm coming to understand it more and more is that it, of course, it's not external and it's not, you know, that really, you know, in that, in a religion of relationship, it's understanding everything is, is a reflection of myself, yeah. right? So, and everything, you know, to kind of go into the mythology fanatic part is that, you know, everything is a symbol, you know, there, everything is a symbol for something, and I'm creating a symbol of myself as well, mm. right? And so mythology was the way that I began to be able to, like, really relate to the world in a poetic way, I feel like, where I could, I can look at something and try to understand it as a part of myself. And that, 
applies to people too, you know, the mm-hmm. troubling relationships or difficult experiences are always a mirror for healing, for right. creativity, for transformation, for transmutation, which is even deeper, for mm-hmm. they're all everything can become a symbol. Mm-hmm. And and trying to understand that for myself too, that, you know, I'm a symbol for others. And what's the, you know, and then taking responsibility for that projection as well. That like some, so I'm I'm standing here as a symbol for, for everybody else too. So what is it they're reflecting from me? Mm-hmm. And I can tell by what they're, by the input, the information they're giving me. Right. You know, they're always giving me information about myself and about how, what I'm projecting. Right. right? So rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so much there, but I love I love the fluidity of that. It it just it feels very much like all of the energy and relationship flowing around and once mm-hmm. things move, I think that's when the art comes. It's yeah. the it's when it's when you have all the obstructions mm-hmm. and the stuck spots and mm-hmm. and we set this up for ourselves mm-hmm. a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once you can kind of clear that way and let things flow without judgment mm-hmm. and just use that as opportunity to gather information and craft, yeah. I think can at least for me that's when the good stuff comes. Totally. Or at least it's more likely to come. <laughs> it's more likely to come. <laughs> it's more likely to happen, right? <laughs> right. I want to talk about your next big thing. You may have other big things you can tell me, but I Always. know you have um, an upcoming album release of Tularosa mm-hmm. and American Dream Time. Tell us about this project. Oh, Tularosa. Well, I, I'm very excited that it's finally manifesting. I think I can say for certain that it will get mixed this month and like it's done, you know, like <laughs> yes. it's in the can and mixed. And, you know, I had all sorts of ideas about how long it was going to take. And of course it took, you know, how long it took. And right. I, I, and I'm real, I'm ready to surrender that to that again now. You know, I, I had to learn that with this one. Um, most of the songs are going on 10 years old at this point. But the impetus came, I, I was like, ba- when I lived in New York, I was babysitting for my now very good pals, um, their, uh, Leilani and Peter Himmelstein. And I babysat their children. You know, I would just look at all their books. I'm like, you know, it was my favorite thing about right. babysitting. I was just like looking through everybody's books. Uh, Leilani is from is from this Tularosa region. And so they'd been on a trip and brought back this little travel book, mm. right, that just kind of was like Tularosa, last frontier of the of the West, you know. And I was like, you know, give that to me. You <laughs> tell, know? Me like, tell me more. Tell me more. Because, you know, I've always been a Wild West fan. I, you know, I, was, I grew up on Westerns and Cisco, you know, Sundance and Cisco, Cisco Kid and the Lone Ranger were like some of the only shows my mom would let me watch were like these Western, you know, like Clint Eastwood Westerns. And so, you know, it was already part of kind of my childhood mythology. But then the stories in this book were out of control. I mean, it was it's basically this region that still kind of has feuds that are going on, old feuds. And, you know, was like one of those last regions kind of all the way into the first part of the of the 1900s that was still like kind of wild, you know, a mm-hmm. little wild. But it, it focused on the stories of, of these two kind of feuding families that I don't know, which is the way and then the, the description of the land, first the the Apaches and Comanches fought over it, 
And then the Mexican farmers kind of came up from the south and tried to farm it and fought the Apaches and Comanches over it. And then the Texas cattle people came and Hmm. fought all of the above over it. And then the eastern capitalists built the railroad through it. And they, you know, it was like always this kind of American, (laughs) like quagmire of energies, right? And yet the land is like unfarmable, has very little water. You know, like it's it seemingly has n- not much going for it. Right. You know, it doesn't seem to have this like, why are people, why are all these people fighting over it? Right. But I don't know, it just started to kind of symbolize the American dilemma for me of like all of these varying cultures and interests trying to come in and fight over something that is seemingly not hospitable to humans at right. all. And now, of course, it's a. It, most of it is a U.S. missile range. How right? perfect! Yeah, yeah. So it was like this, this, this thing. I'm like, okay, is this like American violence and and right. manifest destiny and and progress progressivism and sub, submissive? I mean, like all of the quagmires just in there. But I really was interested first in the stories of it and like the way that these characters kind of traverse the land. And I'm very. Mm interested in how the land is actually shaping us. But, you know, we think that we're shaping the land. We think that if we shave off a mountain that we did something mm-hmm. to Mother Earth that, you know, in, in very real ways can't be remedied, right, in terms of human survival. But, you know, Mother Earth has different plans for right. us, right? right? No matter what we seem like we're in control of or in charge of, she's got things that she that we have no idea right. what she's up to. Right. You know, I was interested in that. And that seemed like the landscape where there was a kind of a bigger American story playing out. Mm-hmm. But most, you know, most of the songs on the album are really character specific. And just with this idea that like characters are being kind of drawn and magnetized to this piece of land and to this landscape for something other than what they think they're being drawn there for. You know, Mm -hmm. they think they're being drawn there for maybe opportunity or dominance or violence, but maybe the earth has a different plan for them there. And so they pass through, it's like they pass through a kind of energetic vortex there. Right. On the album, it's it's really more, I just tried to present, and, and what I'm kind of discovering about how I work is like the music comes first, which kind of flipped me around for a while when I started thinking about making bigger pieces out of it, mm-hmm. like theater and performance art. And, you know, it's it was usually, you know, because I came from theater, it was like, oh, yeah, you come up with, like, your theatrical structure, and then you right. kind of, like, shove music into the cracks, right. you know? <laughs> right, almost as an afterthought, right? Right. Yeah, or, yeah. like, the icing. Like, the music yeah. is the icing. Yeah. But you're saying the music is, like, the cake. The music is the cake. Right, and right. so now, you know, and... Once I accepted that, like I said, I'm a late learner. You know, people, many people could have told me that the whole time. <laughs> but I'm finally understanding, like, the music comes first, and then I build kind of a theatrical structure around it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'll put the album out in, in 2020. I tried to construct something that had a kind of cinematic quality to it so that you could maybe, as a listener, see the pictures mm-hmm. by just listening to the music. And then from there, I'll kind of start to fill in the the blanks of what needs to happen like as a performance or theater piece with right. it. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you'll release an album with 
discrete songs, but mm-hmm. they are they are of a piece. There's are, a, yeah. a clear like yeah. structure and relationship between the songs. And then you will take those songs and potentially turn that into something that can be performed public- publicly as more of a theatrical mm-hmm. piece with workshops and things like yeah. that. Is that the, and you've already yeah. done some workshops, I've already done right? some on it, yeah. I, and I, I feel like I'm finally coming to a good integration point where I'm understanding, you know, like that multidisciplinary artist piece of how the pieces all fit together. Because it used to just be a big, like, frustrating jumble in my head of like, okay, I've got this music. I know how to do that. I know how to, like, make, you know, I know how to lead a band I mean, that's arguable. You could ask my bandmates about that. (laughs) You know, I know how to, like, present music, but there's more. And how do I get that going? You know, my husband says, like, I've got all of these buckets at the bottom of, like, different stairwells. Mm. (laughs) And I try to, like, take all the buckets up at once. And so no bucket ever gets to the top of the (laughs) stairwell. You know, and it's true. That's how how it feels, you know. So I've been struggling with that for a long time. And I, I think I finally have kind of found the format to kind of get all the buckets up the stairs, you know, like with Soapbox, for instance, mm-hmm. that I did last. Soapbox. I know. Soapbox, both called Soapbox. So um, talk about Soapbox, because well, not everybody soapbox, knows what that is. I got a grant from Downtown Durham, Inc., and put up this this public performance, right? It was a kind of a public processional mm-hmm. performance through Downtown Durham, and my idea was like, okay, how can I how can I create something that's going to kind of help me understand Tularosa better, but that's also going to serve this other purpose and and try to open my own kind of horizons into what's possible creatively and really trying to break out of my own kind of boxes, you know. Right. What what it ended up being, it's so funny, was much smaller scale than what my big vision was, but it was it was still great. You know, I learned a lot about how to kind of cut yeah. the fat for what you you know you can do with what's the resources and the time and but you know in, in Tularosa I've got this idea of twelve American archetypes that I'm working with, right? I kind of pulled out those archetypes into the soapbox project to kind of try and understand and try to relate it to the to the moment, right? And so I pulled out an archetype that we called the fire starter, right? Which is that kind of American urge to like burn it all down yes. and start over, right? I pulled out what I call the lioness, right? The kind of mothering protective, fierce, you know, the fierce feminine protective urge, right, mm-hmm. that I'd kind of seen a lot of at the Women's March. You know, I think that it's a different, I would call the, the Me Too Times Up movement a little bit different of an archetype that I'm working with in this piece. It's a little more priestessy, mm-hmm. a little more, um, anyway, but so I left that one on the table for, for this piece. I pulled out the storyteller, which is this kind of the weaver, right? And I pulled out, who was my other one? It was kind of my my jokester, mm-hmm. trickster character. The archetype, of the American archetype, I think of it as like really living on the fringe and able to see beyond what everyone else can mm-hmm. see and see the future a little more. And But it's also kind of precarious right and dangerous Mercurial. for that person right. you know because yeah. they they're forced to the fringe mm. they can see what's avail what's possible what's available but they have to deal with this juggernaut of a, of tradition and 
the heaviness of that and the danger of that, right? The danger of like the community trying to kill them for that, (laughs) basically. So I pulled out those four archetypes and just tried to work with what their message might be in that moment and then had them get up on a soapbox, you know, and, and deliver that message in different ways. And then I'm always working with a female chorus. I did some Greek theater in college that really like affected me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some something about being in a in a female chorus was really powerful. So I'm always kind of trying to work with that idea of the Greek chorus and what what the movement can look like and what kind of symbols you can create out of, you know, 6 to 12 feminine bodies like right. just doing different things together. Um yeah, so I just kind of worked, you know, I workshop some Tularosa, but also created, I felt like something that, that was specific for that site and and also brought in this idea of, you know, like the movement. I worked with this choreographer, Aya Shabu. We visited each site where we were going to do kind of a soapbox stationary, you know, people get up on the soapbox and, you know, do a kind of stationary performance. And we visited each site and tried to understand what the land, what the what the environment was telling us about what needed to be, happen at that site, right? Mm-hmm. So, and what we discovered there were insects, right? At Central Park, there was this dragonfly that just kept like coming up in our faces. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, this, this site gets dragonfly movement. We went to uh, Black Wall Street and there were cicadas laying everywhere. So cicada cicada informed the movement there and then we saw ladybugs that informed the movement at you know what's it called ccb plaza Mm -hmm. where the big where the bull is Mm -hmm. and we had another one too um anyway so so insects ended up being like kind of a symbol in that piece right so i don't know i i started to have more fun i think when i when I was able to kind of move outside of music, mm. you know, because mm-hmm. music can be like that rabbit hole where you're, it, the perfectionism goes out the wazoo. And I think I was able to finally play again, right. you know, and just collaborate with like different artists that don't care if I know who did that album in 78 <laughs> and like it's not like a competition about how much we know and you know and like you know you know I, yeah. I don't know I can f- sometimes feel a music world that I'm that I'm just like I'm sorry I don't know any of this I am not an aficionado I show up I try to write a song and right. then I go home you know like you know it's it's been I don't want to say uncomfortable but it's been like that feeling of like outsiderness mm-hmm. in music world where I'm just like I Maybe I'm not a musician. I don't mm-hmm. care about the things right. that right. Uh, I know a lot of my musician friends care about, you know. And I, so it, it's been, it, I've always been kind of feeling that edge of like, well, there's mu- there's something else. So it was fun to, to do theater with other, with people who don't do music because right. we could just play and figure something out and something new c- might occur, you right. know. Right. I love the freedom that comes with the interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary mm-hmm. collaborations mm-hmm. because I do think there's this interesting tension between the translation that you need to do. I've worked mm-hmm. with musicians and dancers before and mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I <laughs> I don't know the words that you're using or I don't know how you want to do this, you know. Um, but at the same time, it breaks open all sorts of possibilities yeah. for me. I'm like, oh yeah. wait, we could do it that way? Or 
I never yeah. heard about that before, you know, and without yeah. feeling and I don't feel that need to prove myself in the way that I might feel if I'm surrounded by other people who are doing the same type of work that yeah. I'm doing. And I think the other thing that, that I, I'm just realizing is that when I work with a, an artist from another medium, they accept me as the theater artist. I, right. I literally do not need to like show them my credentials or right. anything like, oh, you do theater? Cool. Right. Like, you <laughs> you don't slip. I mean, I yeah. almost think of it as like an eddy. It's like, yes. you know, people are working in the same discipline. It's really easy to slip into... We we should just label it non-creative, right? right? right. It's a non-creative space of like, am I okay? Are you okay? Am am I enough? Are you enough? Like, do I have the? Do I have what I need? Like, are we in competition? What? It's like it's like it just flips you out. You know, weird cul-de-sac of like not making anything. (laughs) You're just yeah. yeah. (laughs) You're just like you know. Did I turn that knob properly? Do I know how to turn the knobs? Right. Yeah. So. and I, I find that Durham is the the my biggest, my greatest like joy creatively. One of them about moving from New York to Durham was was really that is mm-hmm. that the the arts community is like I don't even I, I want to say small enough, but it's like medium enough, you know, in right. terms of like you can run into all sorts of artists in all sorts of ways. And there are opportunities for collaboration where, I mean, in New York, my ability to thrive there was so kind of stunted, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, that I could barely make it out to my friend's show. What You know what I mean? It was like, right. I was like, I will come to your show because you came to my show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. And then I'm going home and I'm not, you know, I, I didn't avail myself of the arts in New York. I just didn't. I was too energetically sapped Mm -hmm. to do it, you know, and, you know, just like to make my own art and to like, you know, be there was as much as my system could handle. And and some people thrive in that. But in Durham, I felt like, okay, my life can thrive. I can go see some dance now. I can go see some theater now. And it's so, uh, it just fills the well, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit more about geography because Tularosa is about, in some ways, geography yeah. and land. And you, so that so that's out west in New Mexico, mm-hmm. right? And I've never been there. You've never been there, Mm-mm. which I actually think is so cool <laughs> because it really opens the imagination. Um, but you started thinking about this piece when you were in New York City and then you moved down to Durham and you've been mm-hmm. here. And I'm curious about those different sort of home bases for you mm-hmm. and how they have affected your creative process. You just talked about it a little bit mm-hmm. about a sort of different energetic feel, but like actually being in this place and seeing the things that you're seeing, does it affect what you make and how you make it? I, absolutely. I mean, and and it, it will be a while probably before I can describe and before I'm really in a cycle where I'm writing North Carolina songs, Mm -hmm. you know, like where the land is like seeped in enough for me to for me to understand like, oh, this is about, you know, this and this is about this. You know, I've written I've written a song about the Eno already. You know, there there are songs coming through from the land. But I think more than anything at the moment, it's just like the vibration of it has seeped into a place where I can get the work done. Right. Right. Like we're, you know, I've got this really big backlog of stuff to work on, which is which is a real blessing, you know, especially when most of my actual time is taken up like 
rearing children right now. <laughs> yes. You know, where it's like, okay, you know, when it, when I have a few moments to work, I've got plenty to work on. Right, there, I'm not dealing me. with many, like, blank canvases right now, you know. <laughs> There's none of that. There, it's the, you know, prolificness, if that's the word. It's mm-hmm. like, that's never been the problem. The problem <laughs> has been, like, getting it from, like, seed to, pl- to flower, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it always, you know, I always kind of would stop at the, you know, frankly, the resources, you know, stage right. and be like, oh, I guess I don't have money to make an album. Right. I'll just go write more songs, you know, and I would kind of get, I wouldn't complete the cycle right. of creativity there, you know, where it's like, now it's time to share it with the world, right. you know, <laughs> it's like, right. I've been a little, you know, there's lots of fear there too, that I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think finally, you know, what North Carolina really gave me was just the opportunity to decompress myself enough to like look at trees enough to, you know, and I'm a tree person. I, you know, it's like understanding like what, what earth environment do I need to thrive? Right. Right. right? And forest is, I'm a forest witch. You know what I mean? Like that's what I need to, to really connect to those bigger cycles. Right. And so I think, you know, just in a, right now it's that kind of general pool of forest, peacefulness, access to a creek, access to a river, really easy to disengage from any kind of city life, mm-hmm. you know, because I grew up in cities. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing, you know, I'm done. Right. <laughs> so interesting that you are engaging with a desert and you need forest. The forest, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I think I'm a little afraid of the desert. Yeah. I, I I know that it's I know that it's something I need to connect with soon. Right. <laughs> but it's scary. You know, I I remember being on tour with my band Earl Greyhound. We we um ended up a lot in Kanab, Utah mm-hmm. to to visit these greyhounds, these this woman who who raised greyhounds, and that was the connection. We were like, we're gray, we're all greyhounds. She was like, we're the greyhound gang. We we're like, can we spend the night? Um, yes, you know. So we would end up in Kanab, Utah, whenever we would go west. And um, I remember like going off into like a kind of high desert landscape and being like truly afraid. I was like, this is scary, right. you know, and it's it was spirit. It's spiritually scary, you know. You don't know what's gonna <laughs> come right. in, and you know, I've had we once when we were traveling through the Mojave in the middle of the night. I um, <laughs> was, I've got some really good dream stories, but this one was like, well, this was so good. Matt, our, my bandmate Matt, he, you know, he was like, I'm tired, you know, let's kind of pull off and just take a nap you know off off the side of the road so we pulled off an exit and we we all were like yeah let's just get like a half hour of sleep an hour of sleep and I started having the craziest dream about like lizard people cutting up people cutting people up and putting them in big like plastic bags and and walk I was like what is <laughs> I was like this is crazy I woke up I mean with a start because I was just so freaked out mm-hmm. And two minutes later, my bandmate Rick starts going, ah, 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 <laughs> and like totally having a nightmare as well. I was like, Matt, I am so sorry. We have to go right now. Right. We cannot sleep here. It's time to go. You know. Right. And so that that idea that there are there are energies that 
I'm that there are unknowable energies, right? right? right. There are unknowable energies, non-human energies. Is I mean that that's the only way I I feel is like accurate to describe it because we don't know the nature of much of anything really except right. human life. <laughs> right. And um, and nature is not a joke. I mean, yeah. nature is serious and yeah. and deserts are are frightening. And so I think it's people so people die in the White Sands desert all yes. the time. Yes. Because they don't take enough water. Right. And <laughs> and you're writing about a place that was a desert that people were fighting over. Mm-hmm. And so what what is what that is all it? about? What yeah. is it? It's very right? interesting. It's clearly something that we need to come to terms with mm-hmm. in lots of different ways. As a culture and as individuals, mm-hmm. there's something there. There's something there. <laughs> Roswell's right over there. Yeah. You know, the first atomic tests were done there. So it's, you know, it's it's definitely someone's, you know, there's there's some kind of urge to control the earth there, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I think a, lo- a lot about that in a, in a general sense that, you know, when I hear people talking about environmental things, right, this this idea that somehow humanity can fix this, right. that we we can control this and correct it. And, and it's like, I don't, I mean, it might just be time for us to pay hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> for what we've done. And right. no one, none of us are innocent, you know, it, or who, who knows? It, we just don't. I feel like we just don't have we think we have access to all of this really important information and we we really haven't like we don't have the tip of the iceberg right. in terms of the energies afoot. Right. Right. So I have one last question before mm-hmm. we wrap up and that is if you project into the future mm-hmm. when this album is released in 2020. Mm-hmm. 2020. I know. It's around so the corner. So many wonderful things are going to happen. I, I think so. I really think so. I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Um, Keep the when people listen, what do you hope they come away with? Oh, well, I, I really hope they come away with, or my, my the communication I'm ho- I want to offer, right, is that there's there's a really deep mythology that's underlying everything we believe ourselves to be as Americans and that we're we're all subject to it the idea that somehow we're not subject to the same mythology that that I as you know a kind of progressive person mm-hmm. that I'm not subject to the same mythology that someone that I would like abhor or mm-hmm. you know would would say like what are they thinking? What are they, you know, like, you know, which we don't have to go into that because we know what we're talking about, right. right? That like we're all subject to this same mythology and they're very basic. They're like, you know, winning, <laughs> right. winning, right? Or, dom- you know, like that these ideas of dominance and winning and manifest destiny, that these are all still at play inside the mythology. And so... I'm hoping that the stories I'm telling, a lot of the stories I'm telling are from women's points of view, from people of color points of view, that, you know, I I think it's the artist's job, or at least my job as an artist, and what I'm really trying to take on in my work is to redefine the mythology, to to dig into it and, and try to tweak it and try to infect it with something different and new. But it takes work. It takes, I mean, it really takes work on my part, on each of our part, in, in, in an American sense, right? And mm-hmm. it, like, it, we have to work on that American identity. We have to actually dig up 
the old mythologies. We have to uproot them and then decide what we're going to pl- place there, right? What we're going to plant there and grow right. that. And that's going to take, you know, generations. Right. So I'm just trying to do do my part. Right. So I hope I, I just hope that, you know, that it heals some people of old mythologies, that it helps some people look at their own mythologies. You know, all all of it's, it heals me, it transforms me. I hope it heals and transforms you too. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I know everybody's eager to hear. Yay. And I will put lots of links in the show notes. But thank you so much. I feel thank like you. I could talk to you for I know, this several fun. days. <laughs> Every Everything that you said, I was like, oh, wait, I want to ask a question about that. But we have limited time. I'm so grateful that you were here today to have this conversation. And I can't wait to hear and see what you do next. Okay, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Hey friends, I'm excited to announce that our second full-length audio drama is in development. The New Colossus is an original adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull, and it's gonna be amazing! We have a cast, we have a team, we have a script and recording days, and we are rolling! I'm asking you... To support indie audio drama and artists, please support the creation and production of this new work by becoming a patron of Artist Soapbox at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Patrons at the $3 a month level and up will also receive the inside scoop on our creative process, including interviews, secret documents, and more. That link again is patreon.com slash artist soapbox, and I'll include it in the show notes. Your support makes a huge difference. Artist Soapbox has created nearly 100 hours of free content made available to listeners around the world. Please help us continue to make more. Thanks. Thanks.